Welcome to episode 209 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. In July, Energy Media published part two of the Unethical Oil Investigative Series, examining Alberta's conventional oil and gas production through the lens of the Alberta Energy Regulator. When I was writing it, I leaned heavily on the research of University of Calgary law professors Martin Olashinsky and Sean Fluker and public interest lawyer Drew Uchuk. The three researchers have recently written a made-in-Alberta failure, unfunded oil and gas closure liability, a paper published by the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. Interestingly, and we'll, I'll get into this in my conversation with Drew, the Alberta Energy Regulator cobbled together a press release responding to a Globe and Mail article about the study that, frankly, borders on the bizarre and kind of illustrates some of the problems that those of us who have looked into this issue recognize from the regulator. So welcome to the interview, Drew. Nice to talk to you again. Well, we're going to have fun with the uh, the AER press release, I suspect. But let's get into the let's get into the paper. And for any listeners who haven't read part two of the Un Unethical Oil series, uh, I cover a lot of the ground that uh, Drew and his colleagues do in their paper. Now, of course, they do it in a more academic fashion, and it's lots of detail. And, and if you really want to be precise, that's where you should go. Uh, what we did, though, is because we're, we're journalists, not, not uh, law professors, is there's... We cover some ground that the, that this study doesn't cover, and and there's some discussion of liabilities and and uh, sort of little case studies of people how landowners are affected that sort of thing that uh, you might find interesting. So you can find that on our website on the navigation bar. You can look for the unethical oil. Click on that and you'll find part two. Okay, Drew. Uh, you and I have had many, many conversations about this topic, and I think what we're going to do, you've, your paper comes in four parts, and we're going to start with the first one, which is inactive inventory reduction. Give us a, you know, sort of an overview of that section of the paper, please. So this is, uh, uh, I guess, part one of, or section one of part three of the paper, because this is the describing the liability management framework. And we, we took an approach of watching it develop since about 1986, because before that, there isn't much of a framework at all, uh, and divided it into four different sections for how Alberta tried to handle this. Uh, in reference to the title of a Made in Alberta failure, that, that is referring to that this is a very Albertan solution, that this is not a scheme that Alberta copied from another jurisdiction. Uh, we... Alberta really built its own system, and so it, it's disappointing that it's been such a mess. Yeah, I, I want to. I just want to chime in on that. Uh, uh, the, the Alberta Energy Regulator is very often touted as a world class regulator. Uh, I, I I remember the the Worley Parsons uh, study that Ca the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers commissioned in in 2013 2014, which looked at the design, not the implementation implementation not the performance of the a uh, of the regulator and it came out number one or two uh compared to other jurisdictions like Norway and the US and and so on but you hold the same opinion 
this is an unmitigated disaster. This I, is okay. I'll let you. I'll let you respond. Sorry. Uh, yes, this is a this is a huge disaster, and I think the regulator has also acknowledged this is a huge disaster, and the Alberta government has acknowledged this is a huge disaster. Without, I think, providing a clear accounting of how bad the situation has got. So they'll just have quotes saying, wow, this was a huge mess, but then they won't give you the numbers on the size of the mess. And we'll get into the numbers in just a moment. Okay, so an inactive well is one that has been suspended. It hasn't produced any oil or gas for six to 12 months, uh, but it it can be put into service, can be put back into service, but generally doesn't. And I, in, in, the, in part two uh, of our series, I quote a, a University of Calgary economist who did a study and said that at most only 12% of the wells that are in this category are ever brought back into service. Yes, that's uh, Lucia Muhlenbachs. I'm not totally sure yes. if I'm pronouncing that right, yeah. but yes, that, that's cited here because for a long time, industry said, we don't really have to worry about inactive wells because when prices go up, they're all coming back into production which I think drove that research to say that that's not realistic. Um, uh, one note that a, an inactive well is not necessarily suspended. An inactive well is supposed right. to be get like a rubber stopper in it, something to make sure it doesn't leak. Lots of the companies don't do that. And the regulator has not been watching them. So the inactive wells sometimes are like just the power switch is flipped off and they walk away. Uh, um, and we should probably also, you know, because most of the listeners won't be won't be familiar with this. So in 2023, there were approximately 466,000 total wells uh, in, in Alberta. Uh, 157,000 of those were active. Roughly 80,000 were inactive. 90,000 were abandoned. And 137,000 were reclaimed. And those aren't exact numbers. Those are, I've rounded up or down on, on pretty much all of them. And maybe we should, we've talked about what an inactive well, an active well is kind of self-explanatory maybe. What about abandoned and reclaimed? So an abandoned well is one where the, the metal part of the well is off the land. They've sealed it below surface with concrete or a different acceptable, in the eyes of the regular, an acceptable form of blocking it off, hopefully permanently, and then removing the upper part. There's still concerns that that's not totally permanent. The uh, reclaimed wells are weird to describe as wells at all, because those are wells that are officially completely gone. The contamination, whatever spill was around there has been completely removed. So that 466,000 number is weird because it includes wells that are no longer wells in any normal way. Uh, some percentage of those reclaimed wells are likely to have their reclamation certificates removed at some point and go back to being abandoned because when the regulator does an investigation, they'll find out, oh, there's still pollution here. But for the most part, those are totally gone. Fair enough. And and I, I use the, the example of uh, Mitch, uh, uh, sorry, um, Dwight Popovich, who's a Vegreville area landowner, who has an abandoned well on his land, and he would like to sell it, and he can't, because the without a reclamation certificate, no one will, the, no bank, no financial institution will lend money against it, and no buyer will buy it because they don't want the environmental liability. 
So there, there are literally, no one knows the exact number, but there are literally thousands and thousands and thousands of landowners across Alberta who have abandoned wells on their property that they can't sell. And yep. with the aging population of the farmers in particular, now they're stuck with it. Yep. And I think the behavior of banks is really interesting to watch because banks uh, think really do think in purely economic terms. And so when they see those abandoned but not reclaimed wells, they aren't having any confidence that those are going to be reclaimed in a timely manner. And that should concern Albertans because those are the banks are very seriously looking at the money. And so their concern is, is real. Right. And, and I, I'm hearing now that uh, the reclamation certificates, because, and this is, nobody goes out to inspect these, these sites uh, to ensure that they are reclaimed before they get a reclamation certificate. It all gets done online through this virtual, this one-stop system that the AER has got, which has been gamed. We know that it's been gamed because there have been, they, some companies have been caught gaming it. So they get reclamation certificates for active wells. And so, the the banks are now saying, you know what, we don't have any faith in those rec reclamation certificates. And and so until you get an environmental assessment, we're not going to lend against the land. And that's horrendously expensive for for a for a landowner. So this is the when we talk about, you know, this is a mess, this is the kind of just part of the mess that we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, and there's a recent example of that. One of the companies that, that was pushed into bankruptcy, Everest Canadian Resources Corps. Uh, just earlier this year, after being pushed into bankruptcy, a bunch of their reclamation certificates got removed because the AER actually, probably the OWA actually sent someone out to check those sites and said, oh, they lied on the certificates. <laughs> so post-bankruptcy, the situation of the company gets even worse. And and of course we've had many many bankruptcies in the last ten years ever since ever since the price of oil fell in late 2014 and gas followed it uh, the the number of companies the small companies has absolutely plummeted. You remember that that document uh, that uh, I think I can't remember if it was 86 or 1995 that that you gave me from the one of the, the regulator at the time that said there were like six or seven hundred small companies. Now there's less than a hundred. And many and there might even might even be much less than a hundred now uh because you know uh low prices have driven them out of the out of business. And that nineteen ninety five document you're talking about is I believe the first one in the appendix for the paper. So if anyone wants to read the whole thing, now it's in there. Exactly. It's uh, it, I, I found it fascinating reading and quoted extensively in, in my piece. So have, have we covered all of the ground uh, that we need to in the inactive inventory reduction? Uh, no, I think I got so distracted I didn't cover it at all. So I'll cover it now. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, inactive inventory reduction is the requirement to year over year do something about inactive liabilities. Uh it has to be either a timeline for cleaning up a well that is abandoning and then reclaiming a well that's inactive or a requirement to set, spend a certain amount of money as a percentage of your inactive liability every year. One of the biggest problems with the Alberta approach has been that other than 1997 to 2000 and starting again in 2022, Alberta didn't have anything in this category. 
And without something in this category, the system will not work. Uh, no system that skips this, in my view, is ever going to work. You have to have something like that. So the one improvement from the 2020 changes taking effect in 2022 is that at least now we have something here, even though I have problems with it. Right. And in 2021, my understanding is the spend was the industry spent about 465 million. And then last year in 2022, it spent 700 million. And then the the number that the AER had pegged for, for this year was 776, something like that, a million. And then it got mysteriously reduced on the website with no announcement or anything back to 700 million. Yes. And I already filed an FOI to figure out why it went up and then back down. Uh, the reasoning is that because they uh, increased the orphan uh, levy, they would consequently decrease the mandatory spend. Uh, they didn't want to announce that publicly because that doesn't make any sense. Like there is no connection other than that the companies felt it would be unfair to increase costs on them, but costs on the companies need to increase because there's been 40 years where they have been seriously underpaying into this system. So it, it didn't make any sense. And that's why they didn't want to tell the public that. Uh, well, uh, the, the fact that it didn't make any sense makes perfect sense to me because that is essentially how they, they've been, uh, they've been managing this system from the very beginning. So, they they've got this new framework man, management framework uh, liability management framework that came in in 2020, yeah. and you know I I I give Danielle Smith and her UCP government a lot of static for for uh, the way they've handled this uh, since forming since the UCP formed government in 2019, but I will say that that the the, the new management framework it, it's better than what what came before. And the management and the the mandatory spending, while it isn't a timeline, I mean, can you imagine an, an industry that's been operating 80 years and has had no timeline for closure of abandoned wells? I mean, it, that's just, it's bizarre, but that's the, the way. They still don't have a timeline, but now they have to spend a mandatory. That's an improvement. Yeah, so that, and I, I don't have an objection to the mandatory spend as opposed to a timeline, because that does allow them to use the area-based approach that they were developing and reduces their overall costs. I, I don't see an obvious reason to be horribly opposed to that. And it's also, they brought in the, the closure nomination program. So landowners who have had a well sitting on their land for a very long time can push that company to deal with that one sooner. So with those two things, that's, uh, that's a pretty good system. The piece that's missing is solving how much that mandatory spend is year over year because they don't have a system for it that's any good. And we've already seen it start to come apart under pressure from industry lobbyists who said, we don't want it to go up. Oil prices aren't good enough right now. Let's leave it at 700. So the 9% annual increase appears to already be canceled. And I think to, to give listeners some context, because you know why is this important? Why do we care about this? The unfunded environmental liabilities uh, for the conventional oil and gas industry in Alberta is estimated between $60 billion and $130 billion. That's why we care. And frankly, uh, I know you, you, I think in your document, you generally use the $60 billion 
I, I favor 130 billion. And one of the reasons for that is because the industry and the and, and the AER has said this in its documents is is that the industry, in order to lower its costs, tends to focus on, first of all, dry holes. So you drilled and you didn't find anything. There's never been a hydrocarbon in the well bore. Uh, that's the lowest cost well to to reclaim. Then that you do gas because gas is is essentially the same thing. I mean, it's it's very it's you're, the, the well is not the, the land around it is not contaminated. Then you get to oil wells, and this is where where it gets expensive, is because very often you know pump jacks leak, almost always leak, and then now you've got you've got the surrounding site has been contaminated and now you've got to remediate the soil and it's a it's a it can be up to a million dollars to do one of those wells so what the industry does is they do the dry wells and the gas wells and they leave the oil wells they leave the worst ones the most difficult and expensive ones they don't do those and then i think that that's underestimated in those liability estimates yes um uh, a few of the expensive ones have been cleaned where they have become a uh, like a public nuisance because they've blown out or something and they're they're actively annoying nearby town. Then the industry will try to tidy it up to get people not to worry about it. And I think that some of the very large players using the site rehabilitation money provided by the federal government cleaned a few of those as a deliberate test to figure out how expensive it was. So we started to see some of those get cleaned up after 2020. That was part of a project by industry to, I think, try to settle what the actual liability amounts were. Uh, and I don't have more to add between the 60 and 130 billion other than 60 comes to us through the Auditor General. The $130 billion comes to us through an FOI or a leak so that neither of those numbers have actually come from the AER deliberately, which I think is important to emphasize the AER didn't want to give us either of those numbers i yeah that's all i have on that right and and the AER continues to use the 30 billion uh, they do use a the number and it's 30 billion dollars and it's been the 30 billion dollars for a long time which is it's just not defensible and and uh this is indicative of the way this organization works it is is opaque it's secretive it exercises discretion which is allowed within the the legislation you know this is not something that uh, i mean it's it's set up to be like to be like that and they they just they're not honest this is not this is not a, i mean the, the accusation is that it's captured by industry and the way it conducts itself is frankly, embarrassing to the province of Alberta. Occasionally, I'll, I'll worry that I'm getting too hard on the AAR, and then I'll open up all the freedom of information documents I have, and I'll flip through them, and I'll say, no, 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 I'm right. Because, yeah, there's, there's one from, I think it was 2018 or early 2019, where they talk about the internal liability estimate that they were generating, and they say, we're not going to tell the public or the industry at large about this, because it would be too much change too fast. Yeah. But then since then, they have not actually released an update ever. So exactly. no change, no speed. 
Okay, we could go on and on about this because, folks, this this is a complex issue with a lot of wrinkles in it, and it is it is just it would take us all day just on the the first issue. We want to get to the second one, which is licensee risk and capacity assessment, and this is kind of the the heart of the problem, isn't it? Uh, the well, it's not going to work without that first one. So I. I would say there is no heart. All four pieces need to work. Um, so, right, but uh, how? But 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 explain the lice. I mean, prior to uh, two thousand, when they brought in this licensee liability ratio, uh, there was no way really of assessing how, you know, whether a company could could pay for uh, reclamation. There was no, uh, you know tracking of who, who might go bankrupt. Uh, so not quite, because they do start in 1993. They start having, I think it's the, uh, I've got it in, the well screening ratio is the original one. And the well screening ratio is, is very, very back of the envelope. It's just number of active wells against number of inactive wells, requiring you to have like a two to one or a one to one ratio. Um, that's not useful because some of those wells can be active, but they can be marginally active so that it was not useful. Um, but by that point, they had already recognized why they needed this, and it was to prevent liability dumping, the transfer of assets to small, usually smaller companies. One of the, one of the points I want to make out of uh, this the, under the licensee risk and capacity assessment is that document, and again, I can't remember if it was from 86 or 95, 95. Uh, maybe 95, where the regulators, the regulator was saying, you know, for all these years, that would have been about like 60 years at that point, we really thought the oil and gas companies were good guys. And they would, you know, once you got to the end of a, a well's life, they would clean it up because that was the right thing to do. Boy, were we wrong. And and that's got us into all kinds of trouble. It was a remarkable realization that it took 60 years to, to figure out that the industry, the industry's big players didn't want to pay for reclamation, abandonment of reclamation, and were dumping it on companies that went bankrupt. And but this attitude that basically you could trust industry. It, it was it was there for those 60 years prior, and it's been there ever since. That has not changed. It's still very much a pro-industry kind of regulator. Yeah. And the the regulator has sort of separated industry into categories so that the larger companies, they trust a whole lot. And the smaller companies, they do keep it a little bit of an arm's distance so that the small companies in some of the FOI records will complain about how the large companies control the regulator to their uh, loss. And they never think about how, well, the rest of Albertans are in even more danger, but the small companies do complain about it. Yeah, I did an interview with Ted uh, Gladys, who used to run the, uh, basically the stripper well operation. Now, these are the tiniest little mom and pop operations who ran marginal producers. And he went on and on and on about how the AER was controlled by the big players and how they ran out, you know, the stripper well guys ran them out of business uh, 20 years ago and on and on this, you know, and, and I couldn't help but sit there. I mean, you know, I'm thinking that, okay, Ted, well, maybe some of your guys needed to be shut down, the members of your organization. Anyway, we digress. So 
but I want to I want to get to this uh, the LLR program because that's really the the heart of your critique, is it not? I think it ha it has a lot of the interesting story, and it was in place for it's still slightly in place, but it was in place for about twenty years, so it's really really important. Why is it bad? Why why didn't it work? So the LLR program has an initial design based on the economic limit of wells. And it would have asked uh, for more security from industry than industry liked. So when it starts to come into force, industry says, uh, please, no, let's design something else that's cheaper for us. And they get about 30 meetings. I think it's more than that, but at least 30 meetings with representatives of CAP and the big companies uh, where they redesign the LLR so that it is mostly designed by well, an engineer from CNRL uh, who is working with CAP. And they convince the regulator that this is the LLR that should really be used. And so in 2002, that is the LLR program that Albertans get to know and love. And even at the beginning, they knew there were kind of problems with it. Some of their records indicate, well, this isn't good enough, but we can fix it later, that this will be our first step. And then we're going to take gradual improvements. But then those gradual improvements don't come at all until 2015, at which point they start to do something. But it's sort of too late. Uh, and, and it still never catches up. It doesn't accurately assess the cost of liabilities. That's what we were talking about. It's seriously underestimating liabilities, and it always did. So let's the in uh, in 1995 between 1995 and 2000 I can't remember exactly when it happened but but the the basically the the AER came to the companies and said okay we've got this uh, new program uh, and uh, we uh, we here we want your feedback and the company said now nah, we don't like that but and then CNRL said hey we've got this engineer who's pretty good at this stuff and why doesn't he just rewrite it for you. And, and that's, and that's just, I mean, if you want to talk about a captured regulator, having the regulated companies write the regulations because they didn't like the, the ones that were proposed by the regulator, it, 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 I don't know, that sounds kind of outrageous to me, is it not? It, it is. Um, the story is even weirdly more complicated than that because the initial LLR that they build is also built with some input and... Uh, support from CAP and EPAC, or might have been under the previous names, but the big regulators or the big lobby groups knew the regulators doing this uh, and supported it. And then when it started to be enforced and the companies got their first letters telling them how much security they'd have to post or how this would impact their business, they called up their own lobby groups and said, we don't actually like this. Like, tell the regulator no. So uh, CAP turns on a dime and says, actually, we need to rethink this. And the regulator does do it. Um, and we we point out CNRL, it was a CNRL guy, but CNRL was a member of CAP. And really, that's why they had so much influence. It, it was CAP's guy borrowed from CNRL. Goodness gracious. But OK, we've been talking about the LLR, but we haven't talked about what it is. So maybe you could explain that. Um, ooh, uh, the LLR is a system that's supposed to balance the liabilities, the closure liabilities held by the company 
the cost of abandonment and reclamation against the value of their oil and gas assets. So that uh, in theory, if a company suddenly, I don't know, all the company management just leaves the country, the AER could take their assets and sell them to a new owner. And by operating the oil and gas assets, that would produce enough value to allow the assets to still be closed. So that the instead of having financial security, it is the oil in the ground that is the security to make sure a closure will take place. That system would only work if they were accurately, pretty accurately guessing how much the oil in the ground, oil or gas in the ground is worth and how much it's gonna cost to close those assets. They got both of those wrong. <laughs> um, they got both of them very wrong. Uh, the early 2002 versions of the LLR had weird errors in them where they assumed that the liability, the closure liabilities of active assets would be 50% or 75% of what their other estimate was. Even in retrospect, and at the time, there was no explanation for how that made any sense. Closure liabilities have nothing to do with whether an asset is turned on or turned off. That's 25% of the liability doesn't disappear when you flip the switch. But that doesn't even go away until uh, I think 2000, I forget, 2008, 2009 or something. Uh, so it, it's, it's full of total holes. Right. And and they were the, each company was assigned a ratio, right? A number. And, yep. and so if you were above two, you were good. And the idea was if you got below two, that between one and two, you were they kept an eye on you. Correct? It, so uh to begin with, it was one. It was only in 2015, after the Redwater Orphan Wells case starts, that the Alberta Energy Regulator says, oh, oh, uh oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. Um, and their initial reaction is just to jump the number up to two. Uh, but then they sort of they use their discretion not to really enforce it against a lot of parties because they were scared about causing more bankruptcies because they were scared about producing a whole bunch more orphan wells. But it was initially one, and then it was two. It didn't work in either case. Um, but let's talk about the, the gigantic failure because the thing that happened under the LLR system is that in 2000, uh, in that there was around 25,000, uh, what at that time were called inactive or sus suspended wells. And by 2020, so roughly 20 years later, there were 97,000. That's and that was a huge problem that never got tackled, and and basically uh, all of those wells, I, I argued in part two, it, they are de facto orphans. They most of them, you know, aside from that, the 12 percent that Muhlenbacher estimated would might be brought back into service. The other ones would never be brought back into service, and that effectively means that they they would needed to be abandoned and and reclaimed, and they just kind of hung out there in this suspended category, you know, in limbo the limbo wells, and and uh, and and those you know almost went up by four hundred percent. That was one of the big failures of that system. Yep, one of the big mistakes when they bring in the LLR. They start trying to bring it in in 2000 and then in that weird process, switch it out for a different LLR in 2002, is that they cancel the long-term inactive well program, which was the 
uh, actual timeline. It was, it was setting a requirement that wells be cleaned or security be posted for their cleanup. And I think it was actually only abandonment. It wasn't even guaranteed reclamation under that program. Uh, but then when they canceled it to replace it with the LLR, that made no sense because the LLR is not a timeline or a, a mandatory spend rule so that companies could just keep increasing their inactive liabilities. The only pressure on them to do anything about them was to stay in the required LLR range. And because the LLR was so complicated and the uh, simplifying assumptions it used were wrong, the companies found it was full of loopholes. There was a lot of weird ways to dodge around LLR penalties. And once your LLR dropped so low, the regulator didn't have a convenient way to deal with you anymore because they could say, well, you need to close this many wells or we'll shut you down. And the company would say, well, go ahead and shut us down. And then you can deal with all our orphans. And the regulator would say, oh, crud, you know, I forgot about that. I don't have a plan. So unless the company was really tiny and they actually were willing to absorb the orphans, the regulator would just look at them and, you know, twiddle its thumbs. And okay. So for listeners, uh, modern oil and gas regulation started in uh, Alberta in the 30s, 1930s. So for roughly, we're going to say 75 years, the regulator, and there were, I think, five or six iterations of the, of the regulator, had two years, a grand total of two years, where it actually had an effective program to close wells and have them reclaimed. That's it. Effective would go too far. It had a program. <laughs> it had a program uh, that was somewhat effective. Yeah, they had something. They were at least trying. And the the shame of the long-term inactive well program isn't just that it was canceled, but that after they were running it for two and a half years and then giving up, they should have been iteratively improving it. And if it had been in place being improved every two or three years from 1997 to today, Alberta would be in probably okay shape. Uh, but instead, they canceled it and put in place something that was not even the right kind of program as a replacement. And then wound up increasing the number of suspended and inactive wells by 400%. Yes. And they were totally aware of the problem of inactive liabilities going up being a big problem since before 1995. I think they knew that by the 80s, that the, the inactive liabilities also were causing a majority of blowouts in those early periods. They knew as, that the companies who wasn't watching these that were the problem. As an aside, as an aside, I'm working on part three of the unethical oil series about the oil sands, and which is regulated by the same regulator, the Alberta Energy Regulator. And so one of uh, your your uh, paper came along at a it was very it's very timely because you you call for a public inquiry into yeah. the regulator, and one of the points I'm going to make in part three is look at how incompetent the the regulator has been you know, from the beginning of time, but, you know, since the AER was created in 2014, still incompetent. And why would we think that they, if they were incompetent in the regulation of conventional oil and gas, that they would be any different on the oil sand side of things? It's the same incompetent regulator. It's, uh, and I'll, I'll slightly defend the regulator that some of the records in the FOI appendix I have show that they had some pretty good people. People who were sharp and understood the problem coming down the pipeline, which I include in the paper, 
not actually to try to complement the regulator, but to show the regulator had good understanding of the problems that were coming down the pipeline, which makes it more incredible that they don't get fixed. Um, okay, what you're doing is you're quibbling with my use of the word yes, incompetent. So, and so, and that's not, that's not okay, I, hang on a second. Because yeah. the point here is that it's captured. And it and captured means that it puts the interests of the industry before the interests of the public and and the environment and you know and so on. And that's really what I was that's really what I was getting at. It leads to these goofy incompetent systems. That doesn't mean that everybody that's in the AER, the thousand employees that they've got there, are incompetent boobs. That's not what it means. It's the system is the problem. That good it and it negates the work. Uh, the, the effectiveness of, of good people. Yeah, yeah, because that's absolutely right. I, I, I don't want to be too hard on everyone who has worked at the AER or criticize all of them. Some of them have been doing their best for a long time. It is the upper governance structure of the regulators that has not worked. That, that's a really good way to put it. Okay, let's go on and talk about orphans because orphans get a lot of attention, uh, but the orphan program per se is really not that big. The orphan program has an outsized impact because very early on, uh, by the 80s, it is the industry and the big industry lobbyists promise to the regulator that you don't need to worry about the other parts of this framework that much because we will be funding the orphan program. So industry, and they, they say in the documents, don't call this an insurance program. Do not use the words insurance program. <laughs> um, but they say that because they're worried that people will assess that that is what it is, because that's what it is. They say, we will ensure the failures of this liability framework. And in exchange, we want to be heavily involved in how this gets regulated. And the regulator makes that kind of bargain, but doesn't do a good job of actually putting that trade off into writing, because that's the bargain that industry got. They were supposed to fund the orphan program, and in exchange, they would be pretty lightly regulated on the front end. There's a story here, and I wrote about it in a column based on the document I got I got from you. J.R. Nichols, who was a uh, an executive at the uh, AER or the regulator at the time, went to a conference, and we got a copy of it. You got a copy of his speech, and and now I have a copy. And in it, he says they because they were worried about this increase in suspended and active wells. He said, we went to industry and we gave them a list of seven groups that would, in descending order, that would be liable for, for abandoned wells, would be liable for wells. And when you, it, the first couple, three weren't, weren't that problematic for industry. But then you get into former owners of the well, those kinds of things, where, you know, one of the big companies, Shell, Imperial, whatever, they sell a well, two or three you know, owners down the road, somebody goes bankrupt, and then the AER comes back to to Shell or Imperial and says, no, you're responsible for cleaning up this well. Th that was a big problem. And so they made a, industry came back on its own and said, as a compromise, we will fund orphans, the reclamation of orphans. And, and uh, people in the industry or people who are involved in this issue, like Mark Doran, who's an expert in administrative law uh, around oil and gas, and, and, and I quote him in part two, he says, they made that deal. And that, that deal 
wasn't a big it wasn't a, a big thing at the time. It was small numbers, you know, a couple hundred hundred wells, and it wasn't big dollars. But the principle holds true today. They said they would look after orphans, and they should fund all of the orphans, including the de facto orphans, the limbo orphans that are sitting in the suspended and in and in active credit, which now is you know we're like eighty thousand, and it would be billions, tens perhaps tens of billions of dollars that the industry collectively would be on the hook for. So now the industry is backpedaling and, and trying to make, no, 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 no. We, well, that wasn't the deal. That wasn't the deal at all. But, you know, I think there's a pretty good argument that it was. Um, of those, I think you talk about the about 80,000 inactive, quite a number of those inactives are already owned by some of the big companies. So right. not all of those will be picked up by the government program. But uh, in, in essence, that that's the view here. The the regulator took this bargain with industry, but didn't didn't spell it out as clearly as they should have. They sort of handled it as a handshake deal. That was a big mistake. There's there's a lot of money on the line here, and this should have been much more clearly spelled out. Yes, I I, I would agree. And and in my in part in part two, Lars DePaul, who's the head of the Orphan Well Association, gave me an interview, and, and he, he explained how it works very well. And and uh, that organization, uh, I think, does yeoman's work within within its parameters of of what it's asked to do. It's not it's not uh, this is not a critique of of Lars and his organization. This this is this and okay. And it is. Um, I okay. I will criticize the Orphan Well Association. The AAR oh, okay. did not set it up well. The Orphan Well Association should have been not just independent from the regulator, uh, but independent from industry. And it is not at all. It is completely controlled by industry. And that has been a core function of how the Orphan Well Association has now worked. The Orphan Well Association, I don't have any good reason to criticize the way they spend the money they get by trying. That's, that's to what I was getting at. Yes. That's that part of the organization, I don't have any reason to criticize at this point, but the money coming in, the industry was allowed to control. They were allowed to set the amount of the levy. And so, and they shouldn't have been, it should have been the AER supervising that coming up with an internal system. That was how the law sort of described what was happening. That was not happening. The industry lobby groups were allowed to decide on the amount of the levy year over year. And so the amount of the levy has not been connected to the number of orphans or any plan for the speed of closing all those orphaned wells and facilities and pipelines. Uh, and that has been the, the huge failure of the orphan program. Yeah, and we should make the point that that the the uh, the government actually is supposed to decide which wells get transferred out of the suspended inactive category into the orphan uh, well program. And, and that now there's, you know, industry is, they consult with industry and then the decision gets made. And then there's a levy on all of the oil and gas producers in, uh, in Alberta. And it used to be not that long ago, a few years ago, it was like 72 million, 75 million. And then last year it was, I think it was 132 million. Something like, and the squealing that came from industry over, you know, which it, what is still in in the context of the 130 billion dollars of liabilities, you know, 132 million is a pretty tiny number, 
and and yet the, the industry complained and complained complained bitterly about yep. it. And that sixty million increase in the orphan levy, I I was very proud of because I thought in some way I had kind of made an impact by hammering home the issue that this is not being set in any rational way. This doesn't make any sense. As we discussed earlier, industry got that money back because they got that cut off of their mandatory spend. So they complained so much to the regulator. The regulator said, look, we'll find a way to get you a refund. And that <laughs> that is dismal. I am I am angry, folks. And annoyed, annoyed Drew is uh, <clears throat> a force to be reckoned with. So industry, be careful. Anyway, this is... <laughs> Uh, all right. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I, I, the, um, so let's move since I'm I'm speechless, which doesn't happen very often. Let's move on to number four, which is legacy and post-closure site cleanup, the missing part. What, what do we've got here? So this part's nice and short because the regulator never developed a pr program for this. If you go to the AER website and you try to click on what they're doing about this, it uh says like, we will hold a panel to consult and come up with a plan. If you want more information, call this number. And then it has like a generic government <laughs> number because they just didn't do anything. And they've known this problem was around for 35 years. They haven't even totally defined what this category is. But these are wells that for some reason, the Orphan Well Association won't accept because it considers to be outside of their responsibility. They were uh, abandoned and then deemed completely uh, closed before the OWA takes responsibility. And they also include wells that were deemed reclaimed, have passed out of the period in which the reclamation certificate can be taken back. And so they are polluted sites with no clear responsibility going to anyone. Uh, and that's it. Just there's no, there still is not a program for this. The 2020 plan said the government would come up with something hasn't happened yet. Oh, the, um, uh, after part two came out, I, I was interviewed on the real talk with Ryan Jesperson uh, show. And, and he asked me, you know, who's going to pay for this? Like, is it going to get paid? And I paused for a long time because I, and I know, you know, you're, you're, this is an academic paper and, and you can't say this, but I can say it as a journalist, because this, my, in my opinion, based on what I've, all the work that I've done, I don't think the industry has any intention of paying for their liabilities any more than they absolutely have to. And the reason is you have to look at where they allocate capital. They allocate capital, they give it back to shareholders, uh, or they put it into lowering emissions, or they put it in, the dealing with their environmental liabilities is down, way down on the list. And so uh, if we expect that at some point, you know, peak oil demand is going to come and then we're going to have demand destruction, you know, could be 10 years from now. And then they won't have the revenue to do this. And so this, the problem we're talking about, because remember, there's another $130 billion or more of liabilities on the oil sand side. So when you add it all up, I think it's about, I use the number of $300 billion of total environmental liabilities for the Alberta oil and gas. 
this is the kind of thing that's the bankrupt provinces. I mean, we've never had a bankrupt province, but if if you if you were going to bankrupt the province, this is how you design it. And and that means that you know the, the government of Canada would have to step in because no they they won't let a, a province be. So this is a Canadian problem, not just an Alberta problem. And it's so serious and and there's so much effort put into misrepresenting and you know it's uh, pretending the problem doesn't doesn't exist and and fudging and dissembling and prevaricating in public about about it that having a conversation a frank conversation about the extent of the pro problem maybe it goes on behind closed doors but i doubt it uh, and that's why that's why this conversation is really important yep uh but that leads yes. me that leads me to the press release that came out two days ago after your study was released. The Globe and Mail did a an article about it, and the AER released this really bizarre uh, press release in in which they took issue with your with your paper. They felt you you can see the 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 grievance written in every word of this they're really annoyed that you did this and then at the end they produce some some numbers that this is hilarious you know for instance they talk about some numbers to justify their activities and so 4461 licenses received reclamation certificates an increase of one third on 2021 well i went and looked at their own data i downloaded it from the from their website. And basically, the AER issues three or 4,000 reclamation certificates a year. That's that's pretty much what they average. So holding out this number from 2021 is hardly an indication that anything has changed since they brought in the, the new management framework. And then they talk about, you know, 11,746 licenses were abandoned in, in 2022. Well, that's only because they moved it over from the suspended inactive, but it's they're still not reclaimed. That the sites have not been remediated and, and reclaimed so that farmers and landowners can sell their, their property with them. And then they say 35,078 licenses with reported spend for remediation and reclamation activities. That means nothing. Unless you know what those activities were, because I, I've talked to reclamation engineers about this, and they say, you know what, the, the AER has just abandoned us. We can't we can't get an AER inspector or anybody from the AER to work with us on the re reclaiming these wells. A and, you know, we do a little bit of work and then it just goes back into, oh, we're going to monitor it for five years. And so, yeah. you know, does that get included in the number? Probably. So this is this kind of a response. You and your colleagues provided a data and evidence-based critique of their work. And, and they came back with this. To everyone's shock for a moment, I'll, I'll defend the AAR for a second. Uh, I don't think they'd seen the paper. <laughs> I don't think when they provided this response, they had heard the paper was coming out, but they either didn't have a copy or they didn't realize that it was going to be out within a few hours. Um, so they just provided generic information that was already on their desk. So I really hope I get a substantial response from them later um, because that would be very interesting to me to, to see what they, they have to say about this. 
but it's totally non-responsive. It's just whatever was in their desk. Right. But uh, this is this is typical of of the regulator. Now, it has an I've been told by industry veterans, this is not the way the regulator used to work. The ERCB or the EUB used to be much more forthcoming with data and comment, commentary, communications. And and this AER is like a little fiefdom. It it if it doesn't like, you know, like if I put in a risk, I have I'm I'm writing uh, a column about the um, about the Imperial Oil curls uh, leak and spill from uh, the last couple of years, and I I, I email questions that don't even bother to answer. They don't even acknowledge your your email comes in, and they don't really acknowledge the request, and they make they make uh, data difficult to find. They so this kind of a response to me typifies the nature of this of this this regulator. And the paper goes into the secrecy problem. Uh, in a bit of detail because I used FOI requests to write a chunk of it. And I think the regulator is more secretive now because they've got more secrets to keep. Uh, as the liability management problem has gotten out of their hands along with a few other problems, uh, they've got more that they need to keep quiet because uh, they, they have increased their secrecy over time. Um, and I think that's why. Uh, we, I've got a specific example in, in the paper about the LMR results, which they initially planned to be very, very open and provide regular reporting to the public. And by the end, it's in, totally secret because they don't want people to see how bad the situation's gotten. And maybe that's the way to wrap up this, this conversation, because you know, it's really hard to have this conversation uh, and not be really frustrated and express outrage at the way the AER conducts itself and the damage, the potential damage, the damage it has done and the potential damage for even or potential for even greater damage to Alberta down the road. But this idea of the secrecy, lack of transparency, that that is a hallmark of this organization. Yeah. And going back to, to something you were talking about earlier, and it took me a minute to think about how to respond to this, that I think the overall way to understand the closure liability problem is that Alberta is used to, Albertans are used to trying to side with the oil and gas industry against the federal government and seeing the oil and gas industry as completely an ally. But this is an issue that puts the oil and gas industry and, and their very friendly regulator opposed in interest to Albertans. And it's that's going to be a big shift for Albertans to understand how to deal with. Uh, but it is also not a complete win-lose situation. It is an amount that goes to dollars, just who is going to pay what share of this. This is a political this is a political struggle between Albertans and the Albertan oil and gas industry. Right. And, and and we'll just say in passing, because this is a complex topic that we could, we have t talked about in interviews. And that is uh, Premier Danielle Smith, before she became Premier last year, was an oil and gas industry lobbyist. And one of the things she lobbied for was something called the R-STAR program. And while it was valued at, at $20 billion, it was a credit program. 
uh, and it would have cost the Canadian, uh, the Alberta taxpayer, six billion to twelve billion dollars, depending on how the credits were were allocated, to clean up these legacy, to clean up some some old old wells. So already, I think this is the first shot in the industry trying to get the taxpayer to to uh, to take on to accept responsibility for some the uh, reclamation and cleanup of its well program or and well problem. The only thing I'd add is that it's not the first shot because they've they've got some shots in already. They've got big loans. They took that 1.7 billion that was for the whole country, but the billion dollars for inactive assets. Uh, industry is on its way to push these costs onto the public. Socialize their their costs. I, yes. Now let's wrap up this conversation by talking about the call for a public inquiry into the Alberta Energy Regulator that you have in your paper. Uh, sure. So the public inquiry is, uh, even though we did everything we could in this paper to get as much information as we can, I think necessary to let Albertans know where things are and where things are going. It's very annoying that we're still stuck with these liability estimate numbers ranging from 60 to 130 billion and a lack of information on exactly how they got calculated. Uh, Albertans should get a clear answer from the AER, if they don't have that information ready at hand, they have the tools to generate it. They need to create a good estimate and let Albertans know what it is and how they made it. And then they need to let Albertans know where the current system is headed. Because I've seen a grayed out redacted box showing that they planned to have the amount of liabilities, inactive liabilities, turn around 2027 and start going down. But that was before they canceled the 9% increases to the mandatory spend. So they don't even plan to have the inactive liabilities start going back down until now sometime after 2027. That graph and that explanation needs to be given to Albertans. So Albertans can assess how much of this risk the AER is planning for the public to eat. I think that the... Uh... The disinfectant of sunlight needs to be shone in some of the dark corners of the AER, because I had uh, opportunity as a journalist to interview a number of ex-AER uh, employees, and the problems that they identified uh, from, you know, for instance, you can't when you're running a, a modern uh, energy economy like this. The Canada is the fourth largest oil producer. Uh, on the planet and the fifth largest gas producer. I mean, this is a major, major industry and the and it runs on data. It runs yep. on data and yet the AER has an absolute, I don't know, I'm searching for words to tell you how bad their, their data system is. And I got that some, a lot of this information from, from one of the people who designed it. And so that's one problem. The other problem is the, the close connections with the industry you know, the, the employees back and forth, they, you know, they essentially the, the culture of the, the regulator is captured, captured by industry on and on and on. And this, I mean, in Northern indigenous communities after the, the curl uh, incidents are calling for the AER to be scrapped and a new one, a regulator put in place that has federal, provincial and indigenous leadership. So that, that's how bad this is, folks. And 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 a, I think a public inquiry 
uh, is exactly what's required because as your colleague Martin Olashinsky says, public inquiries come some you know they're how they operate is set out in law. So it's very it's more difficult to game. It needs to be something of that magnitude. Yes. The, the little bit of a concern is that Alberta's most recent public inquiry was the Allen inquiry, which was a complete disaster. Um, so hopefully we don't get a repeat of something like that. Um, so we, we also set out just the name public inquiry isn't good enough. It, it is about getting the information on where we are and where we're going to Albertans so that they can use that information to come to a democratic conclusion that is really important here. Uh, Knowing, there's that phrase that knowing is half the battle, and I actually hate that phrase, because knowing is way less than half the battle, but it is the first step. Uh, if Albertans can know where they are and where things are currently headed, we can start fixing the other problems of the huge discretion given to the regulator and the intense regulatory capture that has become the norm in this province. It's, it's once people like me, and perhaps this applies to you, once you actually spend the the time and the effort to understand what some of these problems are, and and frankly, we're looking at it from the outside. You know, we're only getting a, a smattering of the information we need to make an informed opinion, have an informed opinion on how the AER is, you know, where it fails and how badly it fails. But even though that those peaks behind the curtain are just, it's appalling. It's it's outraging. It, it's just it. If Albertans knew, uh, they would probably you know they would demand change, and, and for no other reason than their pocket, they might you know taxes might go up, pay the for for liabilities, and to to adequately express that you really can't. We need a public inquiry to get to the root of this, uh, so that people can we can see in detail what you and I have only glimpsed. Yeah, there's there are things that I was told when I started looking into the AAR and paying attention to it that I dismissed as sort of wild rumors that that couldn't be true. That was too silly. And then I would end up holding papers in my hand that proved it was true years later and being like stunned that stuff that I thought was goofy when I first heard it was completely accurate. Uh, that and should it, never happen. Yeah, is it, that's that's exactly right. I mean, I've interviewed people like that. Uh, and I won't name the you know, names of the guilty will be withheld, but but to protect them. But, you know, they, they made all the, these wild claims three, four five years ago when I was starting to interview uh, experts about the, the AER. And I kind of went, I discounted them. I said, no, it can't be that bad. Well, it, it isn't that bad. It's far worse than that. And we're only just, as I say, we've got glimpses and I'm sure there are lots more uh, secrets hiding out there that would we would be astonished and appalled when we find them. But Drew, we have made a little uh, attempt uh, to uh, to get to the to the bottom of this and to illuminate some of the, the problems with on the conventional oil and gas side. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Nice talking to you again. And uh, if the AAR provides me a fulsome response, maybe I'll talk to you again. <laughs> <laughs>